everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bourbon Showdown Podcast. My name is Jesse Jones, and on the show today, we have Laws Whiskey on the show, baby. That's right. We have head distiller Sam Poyer and barrel manager James Coons on the program today out of Colorado. We are going to talk about Laws Whiskey. We're going to talk about how they got started, how the brand began, how the whiskey gets made, and then what are we going to do? We're going to drink that whiskey, baby. That's right. It was a great conversation. I really want to thank Sam and James for coming on to the show. It's been a great week drinking good whiskey, meeting good people. I've been all over the place. If in the past two weeks you've been in Charleston or Texas or hell, any of the number of towns I've been in, I can't even remember how many there's been. You've probably seen me somewhere. So I appreciate everybody that's coming out to the live shows. I appreciate everybody coming out to the whiskey tastings, to the comedy shows. But what I want to talk about right now, I've had the best freaking four or five days I can remember in recent memory. I was at McRae Outdoors in Texas, San Angelo, Texas. A buddy of mine, uh, he served with a member of the team at McRae uh, Outdoors, and we just went to San Angelo, Texas. Let me paint a picture for you guys. It's like the most picturesque landscape of Texas. It's just like nothing but rolling plains as far as the eye can see. You're in the middle of nowhere. It's me, a green beret, and another green beret, and the three of us just spend the last five days hunting the Texas uh, wilderness, man. It was fantastic. We put pulled ourselves a camper to the edge of the property and we sat there we camped we hunted we drank some damn good whiskey it was a hell of a time taking down bucks and trying our luck on good whiskey that's what we were doing this past weekend and i really want to thank mccray outdoors for hosting us it was a phenomenal time they are great people i can't recommend it enough if you want to have a just amazing experience an amazing outdoor texas freaking hunting experience go to mccrayoutdoors.com i am only plugging them because they are amazing and i truly believe you're if you're a hunter you're gonna freaking love it so i won't put my name on something unless i know it's a damn good product and mccray outdoors is producing a damn good time so i want to thank everybody there for putting us up for a few days and letting me and ben and cody just go out and have carte blanche over an amazing piece of the texas landscape so thank you guys very much it was an amazing time and speaking of amazing times i had an amazing time talking to laws whiskey we shot the shit for about an hour and a half just talking about everything under the sun as it pertains to whiskey made in Colorado, where they came from, how they got into whiskey, how they got to Laws, how Laws has built the rabid following that it has right now in the industry. They're producing some great liquid, and great liquid comes with great people, and this is no exception. It was a great time talking to them. It was a wonderful time drinking with them. I can't wait to do it again. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation, so I would 
ask you to go please hit like and subscribe on all of the things on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on iHeartRadio, YouTube, Instagram, wherever you find Bourbon Showdown, you're finding this Bourbon Showdown. So if you want to write us a review, if you want to do any of those things, have at it, man. We appreciate all of the emails and, and messages that we get from everyone sending us new whiskeys that we should review and have on the show. We appreciate you guys being a part of the show. And and here it is. I, I just absolutely love doing it. And I can't wait for you guys to hear this week's episode. So without further ado, let's get this show on the road, shall we? It is Sam Poirier, head distiller and James Coons, barrel manager from Law's Whiskey. It is the Bourbon Showdown podcast. My name's Jesse Jones. Let's start the show. All right, guys, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We have got James Coons, the barrel manager, and Sam Poirier, the head distiller from Law's Whiskey. Great to be here. Yeah. I appreciate you guys coming on. We've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, I've had a lot of folks from Colorado telling me that I need to be talking to you guys about the whisk- uh, the whiskey that you're producing. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to drink it with you guys today. Us too. Every day. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Oh, most definitely. And uh, up top, tell me a little bit about the distillery. Tell me how you guys got started. Tell me how laws came in, came to be. Uh, okay. Well, uh, if you want a little bit of the, well, first, I guess where, where we're coming from individually, um, I, prior to working as the barrel manager, um, uh, worked as a distiller here at Laws for a few years. And then, uh, prior to that came from the brewing industry. Um, so really kind of natural transition to, from beer to whiskey. And, uh, here we, here we are. And for me, uh, Colorado brought me, uh, I was brought to Colorado for a distilling internship a little over 10 years ago and, uh, been out here putting in the hard work ever since. So that's awesome. So did you guys always know you wanted to be in spirits? Like, were you uh, five years old going, you know what? I'm going to be a head distiller one day. Yeah. Well, my dad had a little stovetop still at home. And, uh, I think that image of, you know, this cool scientific, equipment um not that he was a scientist he wasn't by no means a scientist but um and also knowing that there's some rebellious spirit in making whiskey um stuck with me for sure yeah i guess for me um it kind of started with home brewing in college and just kind of evolved from there so that's been a really fun and interesting path to where i am today that's awesome well it is friday afternoon uh, I see Sam is already diving in, so I'm gonna join you guys. Let's 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 start this thing up. Cheers! Cheers! Thank you for having us. Oh, the nose on this thing is absolutely awesome. You guys have sent me. You have sent me the bonded eight year bourbon four grain, and you have sent me the seven year rye. So I'm going I'm I'm to jump right in here to this bourbon real quick. Uh, the, the nose is immediately inviting. Well, we'll jump right in and tell you a little bit about laws, and then we can uh, get into these whiskeys a little deeper. Most definitely. I'm just going I'm to, I'm we'll get started with this right here. And you guys, uh, if you don't mind watching me enjoy good whiskey, let me know how laws got started. And I'll, I'll be sitting here in the background just uh, yumming it up. Yeah, sounds good. All right, so... Um, Laws Whiskey House, we're a distillery based in Denver, Colorado. Um, 
when we were founded, uh, the, the vision was really to create a great American whiskey distillery. Um, and we'd like to say that when we add to the, adding to the rich fabric of American whiskey, um, it's a really changing industry these days. And we, being a small distillery, really want to put our mark on American whiskey. Um, so in the early days of Law's Whiskey House, uh, we were founded, uh, actually, I guess I should go back a little bit further. We were founded by Alan and Marianne Laws um, back in uh, 2011. Um, Al became really good friends with uh, his now mentor. His name's Bill Friel. He's a master distiller uh, from Kentucky. He's an inductee into the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame, uh, formerly of Barton Distillery and Seagram's before that. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, Al didn't want to just launch into this huge investment, um, both time and, of course, capital, uh, without some really solid understanding of what he was getting into, what we were doing yeah. here. Yeah. And so he brought Bill on, um, convinced Bill to come out here, help him set up the production floor design, the plant, and uh, put together those first mash bills, as well as making those first batches with him. So, yeah, he came from a place of deep passion around whiskey. He likes to say that being Canadian, uh, he started uh, drinking whiskey when he was what, like 14 years old or something. Around keeps you warm. Uh, and has collected whiskey for a long time. So um, he knew a lot about how to drink whiskey, but he wanted to know how to make whiskey. And so that's where Bill came in. And um, we kind of all sort of trace our lineage in some way to Bill um, because he, he definitely put his fingerprints on our whiskey for sure. What was Bill doing before he got into whiskey? Uh, I think he was a biochemist. Yeah, but a longtime master distiller in Kentucky um, for Barton's. Uh, that's where he ended his career. But he was retired for about 10 years or so when uh, Al commits him to come back into the industry and help us out. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant, I meant Al, not Bill. What was Al doing before he started laws? Yeah, so Al, um, he came from the finance industry. Uh, he worked on Wall Street for a bit. He worked in oil and gas all over the world. Um, and so he decided instead of just staying on that path, he wanted to diverge a little bit and jump full on into whiskey. That's awesome. And, and boom. Okay. Cause that's, I think a lot of people have a misconception of what it takes to actually create a distillery. Oh, yeah. Like you need money. Like it's not just going to be find some, make some it's no, you've got to know how get it made, get it, get it barreled, get it stored, yeah. get, get it bottled. And then if you have any money left, put everything else into like your freaking um, uh, marketing. Exactly. That's right. So, I mean, we set out to make whiskey using traditional methods. Um, and so we started laying down whiskey. We didn't ever sell any clear spirits, any white spirits. Whiskey's what we do here. It's what we love. And Al didn't sell anything for two and a half, three years um, while he waited for that whiskey to mature. And that's interesting because a lot of people will put out vodka first. They'll put out some of your clear spirits because you can you know, uh, uh, distill everything out of it and put it in a bottle and make some of your money back. Exactly. You can turn it around a lot faster. So in that sense, he, he definitely built in a little more runway for everything to take off after a few years, which is great. That's great though, because he, he wanted to do it the right way. He didn't, he didn't rush any, he didn't cut any corners because sometimes you'll see people and, and, I mean, way back when I think the consumer has gotten uh, smartened up enough to where you can't get away with it that much anymore. But even way back in the like 
pre-prohibition days, you would have people cutting corners by like adding stuff that shouldn't be in there in it, uh, which led to, of course, the bottled and bond. And now, now you've got a consumer that knows all of that. They kind of have done their homework a little bit and uh, you'll get called out on it if you don't do it the right way. Well, I think that's a perfect segue into the model that we live by here, which is there are no shortcuts. Perfect. There's a huge banner on our wall that says that, and uh, it's tattooed on Al's forearm. So, yeah, I mean, there's really no substitute for quality ingredients, distilling the good spirit and letting it rest in the barrel for a long enough period of time. You know, we, we like to say that the whiskey tells us when it's ready. Um, totally. So, yeah, it works out really well. Um, and, and back to not taking shortcuts, we, we do... Um, traditional distilling methods. We add backs in our mash cooks. Um, we ferment on grain. We distill on grain. Everything's double distilled in a pretty traditional way in a copper pot still. Um, and we age in American oak, just like you should. Really? You guys are, you're, you're all copper. You're all copper pot. Our new, our newest still, which is our new stripping still has a big stainless pot, but it still has the big copper column. And then our okay, cool. still is hundred percent copper. That's awesome. So no, no, uh, no columns for you guys. It's all pot. No, it's all pot still. Wow. That is, I mean, that's the real deal right there. That's the down and dirty. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the whole idea behind it is to, and just with everything we do is to preserve the flavor of the grain as much as possible. Just similar to how a brandy distiller tries to preserve the fruit flavor that they're distilling. We, we try to do justice to the grain. So, so if, if you would, um, I am always interested in it. And if this is too far down the rabbit hole, let me know. Uh, pot versus column. What are your benefits to one versus the other? Like I understand more about how a column works than I do a pot. Like I understand the science behind both of them, but in terms of the benefits of the pot still, you just said I, I, it, it nurtures the grain more. Like, like, could you expand on that a little bit? For sure. Um, you know, generally speaking, pot stills are maximizing flavor. Column stills are definitely maximizing efficiency. You can achieve a much higher proof off one pass in a column still, but you're holding much more flavor back. All that rectification okay. on every one of those plates is like a little mini distillation. And without right. having okay. 30, 40 plates, you know, whatever the big guys have, 100 plates, whatever it may be, um, we're able to allow some of those heavier flavor to come over with the spirit without refining it too much to make it a lighter, you know, something more like vodka. Okay. So, so to preschool it down for me, uh, your pot still is distilling one thing at a time. Like it, it, you get what you get from that first batch and then you run it again. Yep. To refine that a little bit better for sure. Okay. Okay. Versus the column still, which does it all at one time. So, uh, level one, what you get level two refine more level three refine more level four etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah you have a lot of control on a pot still how fast you run that um and how high of a proof you want to achieve out of that still there's a lot of control in every step and you can make those cuts really precisely based on the flavor profile that we've established as what we want to present oh that's interesting and and but time consuming like you you have to spend a lot more time in the pot than you would otherwise, right? Like, cause you've got a, every time you run it, that's another, how long? Well, it depends. You know, we just went through a huge expansion project. Um, and I can, I can run you through some of our production process here. Uh, if you want to start, it, mm -hmm. but, um, with bigger new equipment, 
these efficiencies get much better for us. So, um, but if, if you'd like, I, I, I'll start at the grain and we can, we can run right through. Yes, ab- absolutely. And I, I, I'm kind of uh, interested in your beer brewing background as well, because I feel like that has to play a huge role at the beginning of the process, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah certainly. It's, it's everything. And James, before moving into this position as barrel manager, uh, was a distiller with us over on our side too. So beautiful. Yes, please. Uh, before you get started, I know we're not here yet, but this is freaking delicious. Okay, go okay. ahead. So, I mean, kind of the core of everything we do is based on the grain that we use. Uh, and we're buying grain from small family farms, all in Colorado here. Um, these family farms have a really deep and long history of being farmers in Colorado. Um, and everything we do is driven by the flavor of the grain. Tying that product in your glass back to the place where it comes from and the people who grow it. So our corn is coming from Eastern Colorado. Eastern Colorado is a lot more like Kansas and Nebraska. Corn grows really well out there. Right. Uh, that's a small family farm called the Whiskey Sisters, two, two sisters who took over the family farm. Um, their family was traveling across the country in a wagon looking for gold going west when their wagon wheel broke on that property and they, they built a house there. Uh, the other three wagon wheels are the the chandeliers in the family home there on the farm. So, you know, I think that's why the Western uh, people out West are always like more interesting to me from a historical level, because you guys were like, all right, what else is out there where everybody on the East coast was like, we're fine where we are. So uh, their family is recognized by Colorado as being a centennial family farm um, being that it's been in their family uh, over a hundred years. So wow. it's about as deep Colorado roots as you can have. Uh, and then that's so cool. Our barley, our wheat and our rye are grown for us, for us by another small family farm, um, Colorado Malting Company. And they are in Alamosa down South, which has a very unique growing climate. Um, it is at about 7,500 feet altitude. It has really warm days and really cold nights. Um, that, Whole Valley sits on an ancient lake bed, so the soil type is really unique. Um, and we attribute those factors to producing that very grain forward flavor that we get from the grains that come from down there. Versus, say, a uh, uh, mass commercialized yeah. grain, which you might get flatter tones from. Yeah, and, and those commodity grains you're getting from usually from various parts of the United States and Europe. And so, you know big malting houses, big grain brokers are buying that grain from all over the place. It might be decent quality, but they're really trying to homogenize that as much as possible. You know, if you have grain coming from different regions, they blend them. Um, and they're really going for starch content over flavor. Uh, right. For us, yield is less important than the flavor. And these grains definitely do yield less compared to those commodity grains. And some of these uh, grains were actually saved from going out of extinction because people weren't growing them as much. So these are heirloom varietals that only grow in this region. That's awesome. That That is also a very Colorado. All of those words are very Colorado that you just used. Like, well, we like to say, we like to use the word terroir and we don't throw it around lightly. Um, but the whole idea is, I mean, as you were touched on earlier, it was Colorado found us sort of thing. Um, but really right? like we, we really strive to, 
um, not only make the whiskey taste like where it came from, but also incorporate the story and the people who grew the grain and who malted. And, you know, it's, it, it's more than whiskey. It's a whole story woven together. And that that's the beauty of whiskey, I think. And with all of this uh, expansion that we've seen in the whiskey industry, since this new boom that we're in uh, every geographical region now has the ability to put their stamp on the spirit. And it's no longer a two state game. Like everybody with good climate and good ingredients and smart people are able to get into it. And it's, it's, it's why I don't think this boom's going away anytime soon. Uh, somebody was asking me the other day, how many more years do you think we have? This isn't like craft beer. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like some people, uh, their palates found those hazy IPAs and then they kind of got, you know, they fell into the same, which one's which, and you couldn't discern the two where whiskey, these geographical regions are giving them all their own flavor profile. So you could be drinking a rye from Colorado, put it right next to a rye from Washington state and get two completely different flavor profiles. And, and, and that's how you grow a vintage. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, you know, much like wine is understood with those bridles, grain is following that. And I was trying not to offend the beer, the beer brewer, as I was saying that as like, oh, shit, did I just step in a hazy IPA pile right no, there? Okay. I just had a hazy last night. It was pretty good. It's not my go to, but, uh, you know, <laughs> beer and whiskey, apples and oranges, but they are related for sure. So so that's the grain. Uh, the next step in our process would be mashing that grain. And um, <laughs> For us. Okay. For everybody listening, I told Sam to keep me on track at the beginning of this, right before we got started. I was like, guys, I go on tangent. Sam's like, I got it. So you're doing great. Um, so what we're going to kind of talk about is every step of our process in the distillery, we're trying to maximize the flavor of that grain. Um, what right. you're drinking right now is our flagship product. It's a four grain bourbon, um, which presents some challenges in making it. But Al always wanted to be able to taste all four of the American mother grains in a sip of whiskey. So there are some challenges trying to balance that out in the cooking process and with the mash bill itself. Um, our, our mash bill is 60% corn, 20% wheat, 10% rye, and 10% barley. Wow. And each one of these grains is going into that, uh, that mash kettle with backset in it. So we're making a traditional sour mash style um, at a different temperature to maximize the flavor, properly cook, of course, each grain and maximize the flavor of each grain. You know, rye has a tendency to be pretty aggressive and want to assert itself. Um, wheat can be a little more subdued and subtle um, with those lighter notes that we don't want to lose in there. Um, that barley providing a lot of the um, conversion power for to make the whole process possible, but also imparting um, kind of a nutty note to the whiskey, which I think comes on the back end. Which is super, I don't think a lot of people understand that the barley is sort of a multi-talented player in the production of everything. Because because not only are you going to get those good flavors out of that malted barley, but you're also going to get the enzymes that break down the corn to create the sugar that gets the whole thing a-going. Yeah, without that, none of this is possible. Um, so our cook time right now is about three to four hours. Um, that is uh, a step up in efficiency from where we used to be because of all the infrastructure we put in. Um, and our kettle is 1,200 gallons, so that's our batch size at this point. And you're getting – yeah, go ahead. When you say uh, when you say you cook them all separately, uh, uh, could you expand on that a little bit? Like, like 
when you're when you're building that, I, I'll let you I'll let you talk. What, what, what could you expand on sure. that? Sure. Um, corn requires a, a higher temperature to to actually cook the grain. Um, so that corn is going in with the rye, and we're bringing that up to the high temp to cook that. The rye going okay. in at that high temp uh, isn't necessarily essential for the processing of what we're trying to achieve there, but it does help make that rye a little bit more subdued. Um, and that's being how the high temp until the grain is cooked. We're knocking that temperature down in the kettle, added, adding our wheat and our malted grains, um, both malted wheat and malted barley, um, to get that conversion. That lower temperature makes the wheat be able to shine through a little bit more wheat fuel. Okay, so you sort of, uh, you take the ride down a peg from the beginning and then you put the wheat in at the right time so that it can compete with some of those spicier, heavier flavors that you get from the rye. We like to think so. And um, you'll, you'll pick up on some of these spicier, heavier notes when we taste that rye. Oh, I, 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 I've been on such a rye kick lately. Uh, but you said something a moment ago that, that, that we will jump into with both feet when we get to the tasting portion. But I think that a lot of those grains really come out in the nose of your bourbon. Like you do not normally get hints of everything on a nose and you guys are putting something in the glass where everything's fairly represented. Like, like, like if you sit there and nose that thing, you're going to get a hint of every one of those four grains, which is hard to do. Yeah. It, it, it is a, uh, it's labor of love for sure. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And the, the, aside from the corn, you know, wheat is going to be the majority grain. Um, and we had to sort of dial up that quantity of wheat in order to balance out this, the rye, earth and spice and the, um, and the malted barley, uh, which we need to obviously get into in a little bit, but, um, it is in some ways it is a little bit of a wheat forward whiskey, but, um, it balances out really nicely. It really does. And so now you've got everything, you've cooked it all up. Where do we go from there? We have a big pot of sugary thick solution grain still in there. Of course, uh, we're going to cool that down and transfer that over to our, uh, open air fermentation vessels. Um, another traditional style of inviting some of the wild yeast and bacteria from the facility into our process. Uh, in somewhat of a controlled way. Um, but those are certainly going to impart nuanced flavors that you wouldn't get in a different environment. Right. Um, so fermentation takes place over four days and that yeast is consuming that sugar, of course, creating alcohol. CO2 is a byproduct um, to the point where we're sitting at about 10% alcohol by volume. Um, it's now soured quite a bit because of that right. open air fermentation. Uh, and we're going to transfer that over to our first still, which is a new 2000 gallon pot still um, from Vendome in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, some of the best out there, I think. Uh, a thousand percent agree. Uh, so, so it's just been sitting in that big vat open for four days, letting all of those, everything play together and work together and do what it needs to do, soaking it in more or less. For sure. Um, creating that alcohol, most importantly, yeast does its job. It's in its happiest environment um, and creating that good alcohol for us. So when we transfer that over to our stripping still, the whole point here is just strip out all the alcohol, good, bad, leave that water behind for the most part. Some water's going to carry over through that distillation run and leave all that grain behind at that point. Okay. So fermenting on grain is another point in fermentation where we're maximizing the flavor of the grain. 
And what would happen if you leave it in just out of, you, you would just be gross. So the stripping still at this point, um, the point is to just separate the alcohol so that we can later refine it. Gotcha. So we're going to leave that gotcha. grain behind dead yeast. That spent grain goes out for cattle feed. Um, we're able to donate that and um, they provide that service for us as well. So a stripping run takes about six hours in our new still. Which that's got to be some happy livestock if you think about that right there. <laughs> when, the, when, that, when that day comes, it's like, oh, guys, the freaking laws trucks backing up. Put on the put on the uh, the, the <laughs> put on the handkerchief or whatever the hell. I don't know. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so with our new still, that two thousand gallon stripping still, stripping still, um, we're able to strip that out in six hours. Where before we had just our five hundred gallon still, and it would take us four runs to achieve that about twenty four hours of distillation time versus the six hours that we can achieve that in now. So, oh wow! Um, so much more volume. That's a big big step up for us. Um, and at, at that point you have low wines that you've collected, low wines being a mix of good and bad alcohols. It's about 60 proof because a lot of that water came over with the distillate as well. Um, right. So in that one pass of a stripping still, we can then fill our all copper uh, spirit still, which is about 600 gallons. And we can run that. Ooh. Just for anybody that maybe it's their first time hearing how whiskey gets made. Why copper? Well, I think originally when they started using copper it was a very malleable metal and they could shape it into these, um, the shapes of the stills that were useful for them. It's also a good conductor of heat. Um, there are some other benefits maybe they didn't know at the time, but copper will react with sulfur and form a heavier compound and fall back into the pot. So some of these compounds that are known as off flavors or off aromas will, that are naturally produced in fermentation will fall back into the pot and not make it through the spirit. Perfect. So that, that uh, finishing run is done much more slowly. Um, we're making our cuts on that. So we're separating the heads, the poisonous stuff that's producing very small quantities in fermentation. We're removing that and um, moving into our hearts, which is really grain forward. And it starts off pretty sweet throughout that run, which takes about eight to 10 hours push into those tails where you get a lot of those earthy flavors, leather, tobacco. But if you go too far into those tails, it's very bitter and oily and can really um, just overpower the body and the, the finish of a, of a whiskey for sure. So um, those cuts for us are made by sensory and we all get together and we taste everyone's product and we, we decide on where we'd like to make those cuts. So that has to be a fun day at the office. Like the first hint of the fruit of your labor coming through. It's fun. Tasting through all those white spirits is it's work though. <laughs> it's, yeah. How do you keep from blowing your palate out? Take a break. Uh, drink some water. Yeah. yeah. Um, we don't do too many at once. Right. So, yeah. Cause after a spirit run, our collection is around 240 gallons at about 130 proof. So, it, you know, it's high proof and it's, you certainly have to train your palate to be able to pick out some of those nuanced flavors other than the overpowering, um, ethanol. Well, because you're at this point, are you also looking for what shouldn't be there as well as what you want there? Absolutely. That's part of our QA QC program. Um, everyone's tasting all the products we made that week at those weekly meetings. And, um, if we see anything that's off, we're going to go through all the notes, everything and try to dial it in. And how do you keep up with that? Do you keep like a, uh, a, a journal or a, like, I know some places have a, a flavor wheel 
where you don't want it to sit here, but you do want it to sit there kind of thing. Yeah, we're, we're using all the resources we can, um, but we're keeping all those notes for every spirit we've ever, or every, yeah, every distillation we've ever run. And, you know, years down the road, James can look at these barrels and if he's picking up on something different, something really good, or maybe something slightly off, um, hopefully not, not too off, um, too off. Right. <laughs> he can reference these things. That's great. Hey, it's even from my, even from my tastings, uh, uh, it's always interesting to go back and this might be a little too nerdy, but you like something, you make your notes, then you come back to it maybe a year later. And, and cause your palate changes, like even if it's the exact same whiskey and of course each barrel's different, but it's always interesting to look back on what you thought of something then versus now and try to discern, is it me <laughs> or is it the whiskey? Yeah, part of that is doing these group exercises where we can learn who might not be great at picking up on certain things and who is better at picking up on these little flavors or aromas. Oh, that's interesting. So the same way that like some barrels will yield different flavors that can be used in different places in the blend. Certain people on the team are better at picking out. Oh, okay. The, he send the rye to him. He can tell you if that is pickle, which we don't want. Yeah. Or if we know someone's sensitive to something. Um, so that's, Oh man, I've never heard that one before, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's kind of the, Like, like efficient. Yeah. It's sort of just the basics of putting together a tasting panel within your company. Um, you, um, screen people and put, you know, give them different samples and kind of see their tasting notes, their various tests you can go through and identify kind of people who are more predisposed to taste certain, you know, um, qualities in a spirit as opposed to others. Uh, I find that with doing tastings with folks, you, you sort of start setting them up in the same categories where, um, I did uh, a thing last Saturday with a few folks that maybe weren't seasoned bourbon drinkers. So of course you don't start them off with like the 125 proof stuff, you know, uh, you got to give folks to like what you're talking about, let their, where they sit in the spectrum of things help instead of him. Totally. And, and it's actually really good to rope people in who maybe aren't used to tasting bourbon, maybe somebody who's more, more prefers like gin or tequila or, or wine or something like that and get their opinion on something. Cause a lot of times we taste all the same stuff all the time. It's easy to get sort of uh, what you call um, sort of blind to certain flavors and aromas. So right. it's good to get some outside palates in. Uh, I love calling in my wife and my sister both have amazing palates. And I, I know like down to the science of it, that the female palate, even has like, I think more receptors in terms of how they can process what they're tasting. Uh, but one is wine and one is gin. So to your point, they're also not flavor blind to the whiskey. Uh, I love sitting down and drinking with them because you're going to get notes that you wouldn't get otherwise just from talking to regular whiskey drinkers. Yeah. And I think most importantly, we're doing these tastings silent because it's very easy to pull somebody in the direction. When you start describing something, uh -huh. everyone else is going to taste it. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, we, we've got a rule. It's almost poker rules. Uh, if, if we're picking a barrel or if we're doing something for the first time as a group, it is stone face. Don't, don't do anything to make someone lean one way or that's a very, uh, yeah, that's, it's, it's almost uh, a necessity, uh, because you'll, it's the same reason I don't like giving, um, 
too many descriptors because if you're talking to somebody and you say, I taste this, it's like their human inclination to go me too versus just having them say what they taste. So I'll pass it over to James because our last step of the process after that uh, second distillation, our spirit run is filling full size 53 gallon charred American oak barrels that we source from uh, independent stave company in Lebanon, Missouri and Lebanon, Kentucky, respectively. Uh, uh, we fill nothing, never have filled anything other than the full size 53 gallon barrels. And, um, that's where James takes it from there. All right. Yeah. We've got, um, two facilities. We have the distillery where all of this is made. Every drop of lost whiskey you've ever had comes from our distillery. Um, right now we're sitting in the sensory lab at the barrel house, which is about two blocks away as the crow flies. Um, where we have just over 3,700 barrels in stock. Um, we have a couple hundred over at the distillery just for something nice to look at for tours. Um, but the, the bulk of our aging happens here at the, at the barrel house. Um, the majority of our product is four grain bourbon. Um, second main product is rye and we do a little bit of wheat whiskey. We do a whole bunch of different interpretations of malt. Um, we do, what we call the experiential series where we take some mature bourbon or rye or malt and put it in a wine barrel or a cognac barrel or something like that. So uh, there's a lot going on. It's a lot to stay on top of, but um, love the malt. Yeah, yeah, thanks. It's pretty different from uh, maybe what a scotch drinker might be used to, but um, it's an interesting one for sure. Um, So we like to say that there, we have pretty unique aging conditions here in Colorado. Um, Denver is known as the mile high city. So we're sitting pretty high in altitude. Um, it's a dry climate. It's not uncommon for humidity to get down to single digits in the winter or, you know, low teens. Um, we don't climate control our warehouse. Um, so at the coldest, it's probably in the low sixties in the winter and then the warmest in the low eighties in the summer. So we get a good temperature swing seasonally. Um, as well as a little humidity. Um, but then we get pretty good barometric pressure swings. We're at the foot of the Rocky mountains here. Um, so we get weather systems passing through all the time. We get high pressure, low pressure. Sometimes that changes several times a day even. Um, and so aside from temperature and humidity impacting the flavor of the whiskey and the maturation of the whiskey, um, that barometric pressure swing really affects how the whiskey works its way in and out of the wood. Um, cause there's always going to be a little headspace in the barrel. If you think about how the inside wants to reach equilibrium with the outside, both humidity and temperature, but also the pressure. So it, um, kind of works its way in and out. Um, and through that process, we're picking up a lot of wonderful flavors from the oak. We're getting vanillins, lactones, we're getting tannins, um, and the barrel itself is doing a lot of work as well. You know, the char layer is, um, almost working like a carbon filter to scrub out any of the residual sulfur notes. Um, so the heavier alcohols, um, your isoamyl alcohols like, um, uh, fusels. Um, and then on the higher end, we're getting a little bit of breathing evaporation between little gaps between the staves because it's not a perfectly sealed vessel. Right. Um, so we get, you know, the higher alcohols, the aldehydes and stuff like that. Maybe there are, are little traces left over from the head's cut. I mean, that's certainly possible. And 
Um, they, they add flavor to the whiskey though. And over time, some of that evaporates and the, the um, oxidation of the whiskey helps um, sort of round out the harsher tanning notes as well. So that's interesting. I've never heard uh, it makes perfect sense that the char acts as a filter, but of course it would because it's, that's the barrier between it and the wood. Yeah. Carbon itself isn't adding flavor. So it's actually helping. Well, it's shaping some of that flavor, but it's not adding the flavor. Okay. So, so all of, okay. So is that the purpose of the char yeah, I mean, to act as that filter? Yeah, so charring barrels goes way, way back, even before um, straight American whiskey was made a thing. Um, Coopers would char, Coopers would buy up barrels, um, sometimes get their barrels returned to them um, and char the inside just to burn out whatever flavor was in there. It could be residual salted pork, it could be pickles, it could be wine, anything, and charring it not only... um, activates some really delicious, wonderful flavors in the wood. Um, but yeah, in olden days, it would take away those residual flavors. Now it just, um, really, yeah, it's tradition. It adds to the quality of the spirit. Um, as you know, I'm sure, and a lot of listeners know, um, Scotch distillers will take American barrels all day long because they're still very well made. They're great quality. They still have a lot of flavor in them, even after 10 years, 12, 15 years of aging. Um, they'll take them and rejuvenate them by scraping out the old char, recharring it. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of flavor left in them. Big difference being that we, in the U.S., we get a lot of flavor and color out of our whiskeys in the first few years, you know, three, five, seven years, eight years. Whereas a good single malt aged in a used American barrel you're not really seeing that until 8, 10, 12, 15 years even um, because it's almost like steeping a tea bag twice. You know, the first time it goes right, around, you right. get a lot of flavor. The second time, it's a little subtle. Takes a little bit. That's a better analogy. I was going to say like that second bowl of cereal, but I like the tea bag better. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, I think that covers... Oh, um, so the, and I, I touched on the barrel finishing program or what we call the experiential series, but... Um, one of our really exciting products that we came out with as a mainline sort of seasonal product is our um, cognac finished bourbon. So it's a four grain bourbon that we take at about two and a half to three and a half years old out of the American oak barrel, harvest it, adjust the proof a little bit. We stick it in a, in um, cognac barrels between 350, 400 liters, let it sit for anywhere from one to two years now. And then we harvest that lo- that long. Yeah, so it picks up any residual cognac flavor, little French oak, uh, and we can use those a couple times each. So they still have a lot of flavor left in them. They're very good quality barrels. Um, we pick up a little bit of French oak as well, and then from mm, there, the French oak. Yeah, oh, yeah, it definitely adds another layer to what we're doing. Picks up a little bit of that great distillate character. And then from there, we harvest those barrels, adjust the proof again, and put it into a fooder, um, which is a large oak vat, essentially, or, or like a, a huge oak barrel. And ours is 6,000 liters. Um, so it's, it's pretty large, and we can fit a lot of whiskey in there. And that's sort of the final stage in the integration of our cognac finished bourbon. And so we sort of take a few notes from cognac makers in how we... Uh, marry those barrels together, adjust the proof, rebarrel them, do it again, 
put it into the final um, aging vessel and let it integrate for another year prior to harvesting and bottling. So how did you land on that time frame? Because cognac, you could you could end up with a very sweet product. Yeah, we certainly could. And I mean, the bourbon going into it is already pretty sweet. You know, it picks up a lot of that wood sugar early on. Um, but it's it's just about um, selecting barrels, the right, the right barrels um, with the right balance sort of going into those. Uh, we don't want to, as you're saying, um, pick up too much sweetness, but it is a fairly sweet product. I mean, it's not going to be like sticky sweet or anything like that. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, you were talking about your, your temperature a moment ago, and I'm interested the, you know, you go to hot States and you get almost, um, that, that heavy cherry, uh, uh, some people like it. Some people don't that, that I've always just from specifically Texas whiskey equated to that hundred plus degree temperature uh by your guys living in that mid 80 range or that low 80 range even in the summertime uh i don't get so much of some of the 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 negative uh flavors that you can pick up from heavy temperatures in your whiskey like like the i get more grain and i get more of that uh uh ingredient focused flavor uh than i do some of the too much barrel that you can get when it has expanded and contracted uh so heavily from an intense temperatures yeah is is that is that because of the the mid 80s or is that just colorado weather um well one one factor of course is always using full-size barrels you get a lot of that note um from mm. smaller format barrels because it picks up so much oak so fast and it doesn't have the same type of maturation process that James was describing. Um, definitely starting there right. being full size barrels. Um, and that's also not a knock on that either. You know, like there's everybody has the thing that they like. I like, I don't mind that, that cherry. I know some people really dislike it. I think it's all a matter of what you're in the mood for and what day you're tasting it. Uh, I, I just think it is an interesting, uh, as you start to try to figure out which geographic region produces, which flavors, uh, the puzzle is what led to what you're tasting. So your temperature being in that lower to, to mid 80 range it produces such a good uh, 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 grain-based flavor versus something that, say, sat in the 120-degree sun all the time. Yeah, that is certainly part of it, and we like to think that it allows the spirit to age a little more gracefully um, and not pick up, well put, well put, and not pick up the sort of astringent notes that you would from um, maybe a small barrel. Definitely the hotter temperature aging, which you know can be regional as well, like you're saying. Absolutely. And, and the small barrel, can it be seen almost as one of those uh, shortcuts because there's so much more wood on the liquid? It, it depends on the producer. I think there's a lot of skill going into the guys um, or the companies um, putting out great products from small barrels. Um, certainly, we've had a lot of stuff we really like, so it's not a knock on anyone using a small barrel. But I think it can go south pretty quickly, too. So you have to be really skilled and have the experience to know in your climate how the spirit is going to mature in that gas. That's fair. It's, it's not so much a cheat as it's just another trick of the trade. It's another way to do it. So you got to look at when you're doing, when you're using small barrels for aging, you got to look at your entry proof. Uh, you got to look at the time as Sam is saying, 
Um, and a lot of times these small barrels add a lot of flavor and color quickly up front, um, which can be mistaken for for a mature product. Um, not, not all the time. And, and there are certainly good producers making whiskey out of small barrels, but, um, we, as, as we've said that for us, we don't want to take shortcuts. Um, and, and that means putting it in larger barrels. Makes sense. Well, now, um, it's been in the barrel. These particular bottles have been in the barrel, uh, eight and seven years, so would you guys like, we've talked about it. Would you guys like to drink it? Yeah, it sounds great. Um, how about we start with the eight-year-old uh, bottled and bond bourbon? Yes, please. And of course, uh, bottled and bond, that means that it has been four years aged, at least four years aged, and it has uh, been distilled all in one season. And you guys even have the beautiful label that goes over the top of it uh, to to uh, play back to the days when you could prove that it hasn't been tamper sealed or, or still hasn't been tampered. You know, some of the bottled and bond act, like you discussed originally um, back in 1897, was because there were, you know, some foul play going on in uh, whiskey producers and people, you never knew. people were getting sick yeah, for sure so that's why it was enacted um that and of course taxes um uh-huh. <laughs> that, that part of the conversation is always left out it's like we had the public safety in mind no you you fit in a pretty good yeah. little tax bill for yourself too when you had yeah. to push through the man gets his money yeah for, for us and gets the, his money the transparency that comes with making a bottled and bond product uh, and the high standards yes. that you have to follow to produce the product. Um, it, it's right in line with the no shortcuts mentality that we take. And, um, you know, you touched on a couple of those things. Uh, it's all grain from one season as well, a uh, growing season made by one distiller uh, or distillery. And I think it allows the consumer now to know exactly what they're getting when, as you said, you know, sometimes you don't know exactly where it came from or what it is. Um, this lets you know that we made this product uh, and we complete steps to produce this, you know, high quality. standard. Well, and the transparency of today's bourbon is I think the best it's ever been in terms of com- consumers can trust what you're saying because you're telling them everything. Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, that's, that that only helps because that educates the consumer as well as once they know more, they're ready to move along with you guys to the next thing you produce. Like if you keep them in the dark, they're probably only ever going to buy your core expressions. But if you teach them, then they see that uh, cognac barrel come out. They're like, Oh, let's, let's give it a try. You know, that's, that's the whole idea behind what we do. If you ever come for a tour, um, of the distillery. There's a whole educational portion at the very beginning that we call whiskey church. And, uh, we walk you through all the entire process and, um, we want people to know what's going on with our process or just the whiskey process in general. So, Cause you know, a more educated consumer, um, means that you're, you're on that level and then you're demanding products that are made with quality. I will sing in the choir of your whiskey right. church. I promise you. <laughs> I've got to get out to Denver sometime soon. I've not been with the pandemic. I've been off the road for a while. Of course, now we're back on the road. So c- comedy will bring me your way August or September, I think. Cool. So let's, let's taste the bourbon. 
let's do it. And again, down to the bottle, you guys are just putting everything into it. It's a beautiful bottle. It's not like what you're going to see on the shelf. It's going to stand out uh, properly done when introducing uh, a brand to a market that's already jam packed with other, other things. Very smart to kind of uh, pick a different bottle so you can stand out. Yeah. That's what we try and do. I mean, across the board, but um, you know, this is where, the consumer gets to know the product. So it absolutely has to look good on the shelf of the liquor store or on the back bar. So now as everybody listening knows, we've all been cheating a little bit and drinking as the episode has progressed, uh, having sipped on this for a minute or two. Now, everything you got on the nose, which is very grain forward, in my opinion, it's very sweet while being peppery at the same time. Like you get a lot of things off the nose of this, I let it sit for about 45 minutes before we got started. So a lot of the ethanol has burned off and you're getting just those grain forward notes on the nose. Yeah, I think, you know, something we get throughout our product line, um, we talk about a lot is black tea and um, there's kind of an orange citrus oil there on the nose. And then with the eight year product, picking up some of those deeper wood notes, we get a lot of stewed fruit. And I got to say, I, I know you, you, you mentioned um, dark cherry notes. Um, maybe it's cause you suggested it, but I'm getting a little bit of that myself for sure. Yeah. Which is something that I like. I, I look for that. In a- oh, most definitely. Any of your dark fruits. Like I, I, I feel like I'm getting a hint and it could be just from the sugars, a little bit of the dark plum as well. Yeah. And then you go in and it is just a flavor bomb guys. Yeah, no, this is a rich whiskey for sure. Big mouthfeel. Um, but we, we're looking for that balance too. So you get a lot of those grain forward notes, but that sweetness helps round out the experience of a sip. Oh, completely. It does. Uh, uh, you're getting those big, bold flavors and you're getting yeah, four grain. You're getting creamy. You're getting a hint of spice. And then at the tail end of it, you get that chocolatey sweet from the malt. Uh, from the barley and it is it, it, it's almost like a politician it shakes everybody's hand like like everything in this glass is kind of uh uh appealing to anyone that likes any of the things like you've not left anybody out in this conversation nor have you overemphasized any of the grains i think how you were talking about the uh letting the rye cook with the corn and adding the wheat later it really makes what you're tasting make a lot of sense because four grains, the rye will predominantly take over unless you go four grain with a high corn. And, and this is very, very balanced. Yeah, And the goal is to be an everyday sipper. You know, it's not supposed to be a special occasion whiskey, right? I mean, we drink whiskey here. I drink bourbon specifically the most. And um, this is something that you can unwind with after the day or drink with friends. Um, it's not supposed to be kept, saved, and, you know, oh, we well, got to try this because it's the most unique thing you've ever had. It's unique to Colorado, but this is, you know, traditional American whiskey. I, I was going to say, this is just good freaking whiskey. There's nothing, I mean, save it if you want to, but I would say drink it and go buy another bottle. Definitely. We, we like to say that, uh, well, it's sort of an adage from, our, from the owner, Al, about how good whiskey is meant to be shared. You know, you can have your fancy balls up on the new top shelf in your liquor liquor collection, but really it's all meant to be shared. 
you know, and we hope that people buy this and enjoy it and share it with their friends and family. Well, it's community driven. I, I feel like your best experiences with whiskey are not sitting at home, staring at a bottle that's not open. It's having a friend over and sitting there and drinking. And, and, uh, we have set up, a, a again, my wife is awesome. We had a room we weren't using. She has remodeled it completely so that it can be a zero, anything, but sitting, talking, whiskey, wine, whatever you want. Uh, the only noise you're going to hear outside of conversation is a record player. So that sounds great. It's nice. But I'll I'll also add that, um, I quite enjoy drinking it by myself too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I was talking to somebody recently and, and just in terms of really understanding what you're tasting, he will remove other sensory from the room. Like he'll almost be sitting in a dark room by himself just which to anybody not in our mind space right now, that sounds like a problem. That sounds like a red flag. I'm sitting in a dark room drinking by myself, but that is how he gears himself into the glass and there's nothing distracting him from his palate. And, and I've, I've tried it a couple times. Now you really do. If you've never tried something before, get a lot out of the glass. If there's nothing distracting any of your other senses. Absolutely. Yeah. Our process here is so sensory driven, um, from the raw ingredients through the distillation, through selecting barrels and putting batches together that at the end of the day, I don't want to be sitting in a, in a room with no, you know, distracts. <laughs> I would rather be outside, you know, listening to the birds chirp or whatever, but that's just cause it's my job. Maybe, so. maybe drinking a light beer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, uh, which there's something to be said for that too. Like there's other expressions where, uh, uh, they've, it's been named for the, the, the scenario it reminded them of, you know what I mean? Like it's a balance. Everything is 50, 50. You've got to have life and you've got to have, uh, the drilled down experience of uh, flavor. So, I mean, there's no wrong answer, which is, I think the thing that drives some of your whiskey snobs crazy is that you can't pinpoint one thing is the right thing. And then it's the joy of whiskey. I don't like it. You might, it's not, it's not a big deal. It's just your jam versus mine. Um, But this right here is totally my jam because this is damn tasty fellas. Thanks. So which, uh, which, uh, you have the eight year bottle and bond. Is it six S it is six F. F. Okay. So that was, so we actually did two bottlings of our eight year bonded whiskey. So in various markets, uh, not only in Colorado, but elsewhere, we distributed both of our eight year bonded bourbon. So there's six S as in spring and six F as in fall. Um, and so, you know, as you touched on with talking about the bottle and bond act, you can only, harvest barrels into a batch and call it bonded if it's from one distilling season. And so the, the U.S. government tax and trade bureau says spring or fall. So six S is spring, six F is fall. Uh, we had to split it into two batches because 18 of those barrels were distilled in spring of 2013. Um, and then eight or sorry, nine barrels for, um, that we held back were in the fall of 2013. So, um, 
Winnie the Two matches, they're slightly different from each other. So if anybody out there is interested, you can go hunt down bottles from both batches. And it's really fun to compare them. Which is, I nerd out on that all the time, finding barrels from the same place and just tasting one versus the other, because you will inherently taste different well, things. Spring, it's, it's just spring batch is going to have an extra summer on that aging process where exactly. you know, we see a lot of that maturity take place. So, yeah. and, and that's, that's where the art lies when you can really pinpoint it down to that point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, very good. The, the finish on this is also like, it doesn't, it doesn't go away. Like it lingers for a little bit and sort of, um, permeates the other flavors that you've gotten off of the palate. I think the, the, the chocolate notes hang around longer in the finish. Yeah, I mean, you're starting to pick up a lot of Oak at the eight year point. Um, so some of those cannons come in on the back end, you get the earthy leathery notes, for tobacco, tobacco completely, yeah. Yeah. but, but in a very pleasant way, like, like in a very complimentary way to some of the dry fruit you get off of the palate and, uh, that citrus you get off the nose, uh, that, the uh, uh, what did you call it? Black tea. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's present in, in most of our whiskey. Um, prior to the eight year bottle and bond, we had a six year release, a couple six year releases. The first bottled and bond whiskey that we ever released was a four year, uh, bonded bourbon. And so every time we've released, um, a new round of bonded, we've tried to sort of raise the bar. Six years is going to be our baseline from here on out. We'll do nothing, no bonded whiskey or no bonded bourbon younger than six years. Um, this, this batch is eight years. Um, but it's going to fluctuate um, in the future from between six years, eight years, who knows, maybe up to 10 years. We don't know. Um, I was going to say, are you going to hold some back so that like in 17, 18 years, you can have an 18 year laws? I think we, we've got a dark corner around this warehouse somewhere where who knows what's hanging out in there. I try and hide it from our salespeople, but they, uh, they get their hooks into them. The marketing is right there in the name. Uh, how long do you have to be, uh, with someone for it to be a common law marriage? Right. <laughs> yeah. So where are we going next fellas? Uh, we're going to move on to the seven year bottled in bond, uh, San Luis Valley rye. And I'll tell you a little bit about making rye, this. making rye whiskey, um, because I touched on the bourbon, uh, we're making a hundred percent rye whiskey. Now what you're tasting right here, um, made seven years ago, did have 5% barley in it at the time. Um, okay. We have transitioned to hundred percent rye, but even, even being that the 95% rye is, um, it's a difficult process because rye is a very, um, thick and viscous mash. Um, there's a lot of protein in there that makes life a little less easier than when we're making bourbon all day long. Um, it, coats the equipment. There's a lot more cleaning involved. It gets into the fermentation and it's so thick. It captures that CO2 in there and it carries the whole mash up out of the fermenter. So it's all over the sides and the floor. So the day shift comes in, you know, super early in the, the morning, it's still dark outside. And first thing you hear, you open up that door, it's kind of just a plop, plop, plop. And that's that rye mash just spilling all over the place. And uh, it's a very unique grain being an heirloom rye only grown in the San Luis Valley, which it, it's called, um, San Luis Valley rye, SLV rye. Um, and it's very, I, I, I picture rye cooking almost like the state puff marshmallow man blowing up at the end of ghostbusters. It's just, it's just everywhere wrong there, but, um, you know, it's a really unique, flavorful rye. It, it has the spice that you know and love from rye, but it's not just one dimensional spice. You know, it's, it's more vegetal. It has a sweetness in the body, almost like honey. Um, and 
I mean, we love this rye. Yeah. And, uh, that sweetness comes off the nose. Like you get that sweetness. Oh, that's beautiful. The nose has like a sweet spicy to it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And something that I love about this particular expression of our bonded whiskey is the body, which I know we're skipping uh, past the aroma, but the body of this is unlike any other ride that we've ever put out. Oh my God. I could, I, 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 I send me to bed, bath and beyond. I want a candle of this. Yeah, no, it's nice. I mean, we still get the black tea and rye. Um, yeah. Get that more here than I did with the last one. Like I had to look for it in the last one, but this one it's front and center. Cheers, fellas. This is, I mean, if it's half as good as it smells, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> this is, you know, definitely the people in the village that make up Law's Whiskey. Uh, this is a favorite for sure. Yeah, I think we're mostly when you go so high rye, it's so easy to make a misstep. It's so easy to get it a little bit to the left. This is pristine. Yeah, it's complex. You know, it's not just oh, black pepper thrown at you. Um, it's it's really unique. There's some cherry cola on that nose, I think. Yeah. Right. So some of those cola notes. Completely. Uh, the cola notes come through. Uh it, it, not to sound lame, it's sort of an exciting sipper. Like, like there's a, there's enough going on here that when you, when you take a sip of it, you're like, Oh, yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it's fun. I think rye often presents as kind of an anise flavor in whiskey too. Uh, I think we get that. It's a little more subdued here, um, but there's a vegetal note there that is, I mean, it, this is like you're tasting rye. This is just what rye tastes like. So we use a high percentage of malted rye in this, which provides more of a toasted, softer rye bread note. Um, raw rye presents a little more vegetal. Um, it can be, we kind of talk about a serrano pepper note with this because it has spice, but it's more vegetal. Explain the difference there. Explain the difference between the toasted rye and the regular rye and the vegetal versus the toasted. Sure. Well, um, going back to processing, having malted grains in the mash bill, um, containing those enzymes are what's making the process possible. Um, so we're relying on that malted rye for conversion, but it also imparts right. a much, I think a much um, softer, more desirable flavor than just raw rye as itself. Um, because it's like a buttered piece of rye toast as opposed a thousand percent. It's velvety. Yeah. The raw rye doesn't go through any of the killing process that the malted rye does. So it is actually being heated up and um, it lower, lower moisture content after the malting process. So that adds that nice toasty flavor. And for the malting, explain to me a little bit what that is. I, 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 I want to make a guess, but I don't know if I'm right. So I'm, I'm going to ask, I'm, I'm going to ask and listen. No, that's you, James. Okay, so... That's all you, James. The malting process, um, as we've touched on, our, our mash bills include, and, and a lot of mash bills, a lot of American whiskey, um, include raw grain and malted grain. Um, the raw grain contains a ton of starch um, and flavor, you know, protein, oil, all that stuff. The malted grain is really doing the heavy lifting as far as um, converting um, the starch that's bound within the grain into fermentable sugar. So... The malting process, it simply put, is tricking a seed into germinating, thinking that it's okay. grain time. Um, you give it very specific conditions with oxygen, carbon dioxide. You change the levels of, of oxygen and CO2 
during the process, but you steep it in water um, over the period of a few days. You trick it into germination. And when it germinates, then it sprouts uh, rootlets and little tiny stems. And then you halt that germination process before it goes too far. And in that process, if that seed were underground, it would be creating enzymes that break down, essentially cannibalize itself into um, that starch that can be converted into energy because it can't photosynthesize yet. It's underground. Um, but the maltster will halt that process with hot air through the kilning process. And then you have a seed that's rich in um, uh, tightly bound starch, as well as the enzymes responsible for breaking down that starch into fermentable sugar. So it's really a, the perfect point in um, sort of the germination process where then we can harness that into um, making it into alcohol. It's like a super barley at that point. Yeah, definitely. That Okay, that's that's... Okay, that's what I thought. I, I just uh, be, sounded better coming out of you than me guessing. For sure. And that, that malting process is done by um, the Cody family farm down in Alamosa, where they have built a malting barn um, and they have all these malting beds that they can malt the grain that they grow um, for us to make whiskey with and breweries across the country. Right, which I mean, makes sense. Let the people that, that in all of these, uh, let the person that's the best at it do it for sure. And we're buying from them now a hundred percent of the rye they grow. So you can't get really there. That's awesome. Uh, this rye is spectacular. Thank you. It's, um, it's the most unique thing we make and it's something we're very proud of. Uh, you know, I spoke about the, the troubles in processing. It's all worth it. Of course. I mean, when, when the end result is this, it's a, it's a lot easier to wake up and go to work every day. Cause you know, you're doing something right. That's right. But it's, that's not saying when we go back to making bourbon, we're not super ecstatic. No, <laughs> I think, I think that goes to, to everything I've tasted you guys make so far. Uh, there's a, I love the farm to table mentality behind it. I love the copper still. I love that you guys are, you're making whiskey. Yeah. We like you're, the, you're not uh, field to glass field to glass. There you go it's it's it comes through it comes through uh from the nose to the finish it, it's all very good thank you good job I, I i'm sitting here i'm just still sitting in the awe of the rye the the rye is pretty damn phenomenal yeah, it keeps going on the palate too after you right it'll just kind of keep lingering and it you, it has almost this effect almost like szechuan peppercorns it's like or like the serrano pepper like sam was talking about like it has this kind of you know, a little bit of a numbing, tingling effect on your palate just keeps going. Yeah. I keep waiting for it to fade, but it's like, it's, um, it's almost carbonated. Like it's just sitting on the top of the tongue, kind of fizzling a little yeah, bit and, 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 and it's good. It's very good. This is why we taste the bourbon first. Yes, completely. Always taste the bourbon before the rye. Uh, but then again, I'm going back to the bourbon after this. So, you know, no. <laughs> It's Friday. Why not? On that note, what do you guys, uh, when you're not making delicious whiskey, what do you guys do? I know uh, every time I'm in Colorado, I'm either snowboarding or hunting. So what, what's your guys' uh, off hours pleasure? Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of the culture here in Colorado is just being outdoors. Um, so for me personally, spending time with my wife and the dogs, we like to camp. Uh, we have a sweet little camper van and uh, getting outside and experiencing what, you know, 
why people come here to Colorado. We try to get that in our daily lives. Beautiful. I, I love Colorado for the lack of humidity, like North Carolina's 95% humidity. Well, you have to mix some waters into, uh, into the whiskey here because it, it'll hit you hard in the morning if you yeah. don't. <laughs> I bet, right? You're just completely dehydrated by the next day. How about, how about you, Sam? I'm sorry, James. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, she's probably summertime camping um, and getting into woodworking and metalworking and stuff like that. Just fun little projects here and there. Uh, but the outdoors, absolutely. Um, when the weather's nice, you just got to get out and enjoy it. And, and we do both like to go down to the farms and spend time with those guys and uh, gals, of course, um, and drink some whiskey down where, where the grain comes from. It's kind of a magical place. It's the San Luis Valley, as Sam was saying, is this prehistoric ancient lake bed. It's a big valley. The Great Sand Dunes uh, National, is it the National Park. Yeah, it's, uh, it's in the San Luis Valley, the southern part of the valley. Um, there's a lot of geothermal activity there. Um, it's a really, it's it's a high desert. Uh, at first, it might look a little bit stark, but the beauty kind of grows on you over time. And it's fun. It's weird. Um, it's interesting. And we, I mean, we've been going down there a couple times a year, at least for, you know, about six, seven years now. So it's it's sort of like, for lost people, it's kind of like a home away from home almost. Like a pilgrimage. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yep. That's awesome. Uh, my cousin right now, she's living right outside of Denver. So as often as possible, we always try to get out there and get some skiing in. Uh, I, I can't really say we've camped as much as, you know, we've hunted a few times. Uh, which when you hunt, there's a cabin and, uh, that's also where good whiskey is poured. So, well, there's some great beer out here. Of course, uh, we're, we're proud to be part of the great whiskey community that I think Colorado is establishing for itself, but, um, there's a lot of, uh, beer and whiskey tourism to be done too. So most definitely you guys almost have like your own whiskey trail or a bourbon trail at this point. Like there's a lot of good things happening in Colorado right now. Yeah. We're fans of fans of a lot of it. Well, it's a community, right? Like, uh, the one thing I found about bourbon that you don't see in other industries is like support one another. Like everybody pulls resources together and it's like, if, if it's good for one, it's good for all. And don't badmouth anybody because everybody's making it better. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. We like to say the rising tide raises all ships and, um, so many people have been good to us in the industry and we like to pay it forward, both with other distillers and brewers. We have a lot of friends in the brewing industry who buy our barrels and age their beer in our barrels. And, um, just kind of that feedback loop that keeps us all tied together. Yeah. I think, I mean, we take the mentality that we're making our best whiskey today. We're very proud of everything we put out. Um, but we've made changes over the, the years to, dial in everything that we do and try to really, really, really maximize the, the flavor of the grain and the quality of the, the whiskey coming out of Boss Whiskey House. So. Well, you're doing a great job and I, I thoroughly have enjoyed talking to you guys. Uh, the whiskey is phenomenal. Anybody, if you see laws, where, where, where all, which States are you guys in right now? Where can people find you guys? Uh, if you guys, want to find us or any information about us lawswhiskeyhouse.com is the best, best place to do that uh, it shows where we are distributed uh, and where you can buy it in some select states online as well 
Very good. Well, I wish you guys nothing but the best. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today, walking me through how you make the deliciousness that you make. Uh, I hope both of you have a phenomenal weekend. I know how I'm spending my Friday night. It's going to be going back and forth between which one I like better, the bourbon or the rye. That's a tough choice. Thanks, Jesse. I, I find something in each of them. Like there's something inviting in each glass. So I'm, 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 I'm going to get to the bottom of it, fellas. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. Sounds good. Thank you. All right, guys. Have a great weekend. Cheers. All right. Cheers. All right, everybody. There you have it. That is this week's episode. I want to thank Sam and James from Laws Whiskey for coming onto the program, for sharing that good Colorado whiskey with us. It was a great time. It was a great conversation. It was some really good whiskey. So I want to thank them for coming on the program, for giving us their time. It was great, and I appreciate it. And that's this week's episode, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you come back next week. We've got, bump. we've got what was that sound about it a bump we've got whistle pig coming on the show next week that's right boss hog themselves whistle pig comes on and they share with us all the fun things they're up to right now the boss hog just came out we're going to talk about it we're going to talk about all of the good stuff they've been making up in vermont it's a fun conversation combined with a cute little pig nozzle that i use to pour whiskey into a glass now so we'll be on the lookout for that if you would please go hit like and subscribe on all of the things then come on back next week for another episode of the bourbon showdown podcast my name is jesse jones let's raise a glass and kick some ass i'll see you guys on down the road goodbye everybody goodbye